Hello, friend. Thank you, as always, for joining me here on The Tully Show. Without you, I am literally just a guy in his basement with a dog all by my lonesome talking about a bunch of 40-year-old records. So I am grateful, as always. You've joined me here. I will take this opportunity to remind you, if you'd like to spend more quality time with me and my dog down here in my podcast bunker, you need only sign up at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. There's a plethora of non-music-themed podcasts, but as long as we're talking music like we're going to on today's episode of The Tully Show, I'll remind you at patreon.com slash Mike Tully, we talk about your favorite music. We talk about my favorite music. Uh, last week, I, on a pod I like to call Classic Rock, we questioned one of the unquestioned rock masterpieces, a critical look back at Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and uh, in addition to all that, as has increasingly become my habit, once I finish today's look back at the best new releases of August 82, we'll be taking a look at the best of the rest over at my Patreon. That podcast is already up there as you listen to this, free and open to the public. Just go and enjoy the rest of the stuff that came out on this month in 1982 exclusively at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Coming to you live on tape from a freshly refurbished podcast bunker in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world famous Hollywood sign. This is the Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully, back once again to take a look at a bunch of records that came out almost but not exactly 40 years ago. Thanks, as always, for joining me here. I really, I say it every time, I mean it every time, I have so much fun going back and looking at what came out on a given month, uh, a year when I was five years old. It's, you know, it's very, something very special about the the music that you're first exposed to. It just has such a huge, huge place in your mind and in your uh, your sense of what music is. I, it's so much fun for me to not only take a look at all the stuff that came out in a given month, in a given year in the early 80s, but then to dig in a little bit and look at the, the backstory of some of this stuff, which in many cases I find I was going to say as interesting in the case of Don Henley, a lot more interesting than I find the music itself. So thanks for, I honestly think I probably would still do this for my own pleasure if absolutely nobody listened to it, but that would be a little sad. So I'm really, really happy that uh, at least a handful of people out there share my passion for poking through just about every last nook and cranny of uh, new music releases from the early eighties. Thanks for being here. I was I put together this month's playlist, and I was thinking it was good, not great. There have been some months that we've talked about where I've just been really, truly blown away at how much, um, you know, like music world-changing stuff came out in the course of one month and how many cross-currents were going on while this important thing was happening in metal, this thing was happening in pop, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I looked at this month and I said, it's good, it's okay. And then I really started to think about it. Here's what we're going to be looking at this time around. The end of the line for 
a guy who was either the second or third biggest pop act of the 1970s. This guy had a run. It started at the end of the 60s, and then it, it, it carried, obviously, into the beginning of the 80s. But this guy was uh, among a handful of people who owned the charts and record sales in the 70s, and he'd made his last album that was going to really make an impact on the culture. Had It wrote his last big single. It's not his finest moment, not by uh, not by far, but it was a big hit, and you're definitely going to remember it, and we're going to talk about that. I think there is a case to be made that I, I love making up, you know, when I do these themed music uh, episodes, one-hit wonders, failed follow-up singles, etc. I don't remember if I did it or not. I know I started working on an episode of the, the biggest hits of all time that weren't actually hits, didn't even crack the top 40. And bear in mind, if you're listening, even a radio station with a pretty big playlist in the 80s was probably only really playing maybe the top 10, the top 15 on any regular rotation, you know, that mixed with, you know, other hits that were, you know, that had come out in the last couple of years that had fallen off the charts. That's a pretty big playlist for a, a pop radio station. The top 40 songs, they don't even play all 40 on the radio. This song is... Like there's a there's just a handful of musical phrases that just mean something, right? Like if something bad or scary happens and somebody goes dun, 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 like you just we know what that means. That's a, that's musical shorthand for uh, a part of life, an emotion, you know. This song is one of those, and it did not crack the top forty, and it came out in. This month of 1982, I mentioned Don Henley. We'll be hearing the disturbing story behind what I what I've learned was his biggest solo hit, which is not the song I would have expected it was. Uh, two of the absolute biggest rock acts from the 70s who notoriously engaged in a lot of drug using and overall bad behavior hit rock bottom at the same time in this month in 1982 uh, one of the biggest artists in disco we tend to think of this person as having been finished the the moment that disco died and those guys with bad haircuts and mustaches trashed all those disco records on the field at Comiskey Park where the White Sox play and whenever that was 80 81 but like the villain in a slasher film this guy's hand came out of the grave and he had one last um, largely forgotten but actually to my ears pretty good hit in August of 1982 and uh, finally I will show you folks why a person who is widely considered one of the biggest, if not the biggest, musical geniuses in pop music history might have actually been even more amazing than you probably realize. So all in all, I think we've got a lot of stuff to talk about that's pretty fun to talk about. I'd like to take a look at the music news, the stuff that was going on in the music world outside of the music in a given month that we're talking about. Nothing too exciting going on here. August 17th in Germany, the first mass production of the compact disc is underway. That's coming. I guess, I mean... The CD revolution, I think of that as more of a 90s thing. I was definitely a low-bias cassette duping man straight into the the late 80s and probably early 90s. So this, I'm sure, went largely 
unnoticed at the time. Four streets in Liverpool were named after each of, of course, the Beatles. That tracks. That makes sense. I think we can agree they earned that. And Ronnie James Dio played his final show with Black Sabbath until 1992. They kicked Ozzy out. Ozzy, my kid is obsessed with Ozzy these days. I can't tell you how many videos I've seen from this basic era. You can definitely see Black Sabbath's angle. Ozzy looked like he'd been floating in a lake for a while by the time of you. It's, it's, it's astounding. Among the many astounding things about this man, just how he is still alive and how he survived orally decapitating so many different types of flying creatures, how this man played any role in making songs like Crazy Train and Goodbye to Romance, much less just managed to walk and talk on a consistent basis. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing when you see what he looked like around this, this era. It's easy to see, as crazy as it seems in retrospect, why Black Sabbath kicked him out and replaced him with, a, you know, you're, there's no... You're not going to get another Ozzy. Ronnie James Dio was a was a, a pretty solid backup plan, but this begins. You know, Ozzy continues to remain a a relevant charting artist for the next ten years plus. He never kind of never really stopped, never really went away. Whereas uh, Tony Iommi at one point is the last guy standing in Black Sabbath, and just uh, just shuffles through a whole bunch of pretty forgettable frontmen. So this is the beginning of the rise of solo Ozzy and the demise of the Ozzy-less Black Sabbath that happens once Dio goes solo on this month in 1982. But uh, we're going to start by talking about Neil Diamond. As I mentioned, one I read somewhere some sometime that... Barbara Streisand was the number one selling artist of the 70s. As always, do not quote me on any of this. I'm just a guy in my basement. And, uh, but I heard that the two and three, I forget in what order, were uh, Elton John and Neil Diamond. And I've told the story a million times, but I once was privileged to spend an afternoon kind of alone in a studio with the now deceased Neil Diamond. And along the way, he... I mentioned that I was going to see Elton John the next day. And he's like, you must tell him I say hello. And he really is like that, like all, he was like that all the time. So I got to see Elton John the next day and tell him that Neil Diamond said hi. And I I knew from having done a little homework going into that, that they were behind Barbra Streisand, the two, literally the two biggest acts of a whole entire decade. We've seen a lot of artists as we do these shows trying to, adapt and change with the times with varying degrees of success. That was not in Neil Diamond's DNA. Neil Diamond was Neil Diamond through and through for better or for worse. If you're a certain kind of person, you love what he brought to the table. If you uh, were a little bit more of a alternative counterculture, just rock and roll person, Neil Diamond was the height of cheese, the height of schmaltz. And he, we may find him at the very, very pinnacle of his cheesy schmaltziness here with what was his his final gigantic hit. Uh, you will recall. Turn on your hot lights. Let it shine wherever you go. Let it make a happy glow for all the world to Turn on your hot lights In the middle of a young boy's dream Don't wake me up too soon 
As you have likely heard that song, I don't know if it was ever actually confirmed that song was widely rumored to be about E.T. Like not, hey, Neil Diamond, we need a song for the E.T. soundtrack. Just Neil Diamond saw it and liked it so much he wrote a song about it. And I, I saw that it, it's widely reported to be. I don't, I don't know why Neil Diamond like played his cards close to his chest on that because um, I hope that song was about E.T. Otherwise, that part about in the middle of a young boy's dream was problematic, even by the relatively lax standards of 1982. More on the relatively lax moral standards of 1982 when we get to Don Henley. Oh, my God. But first... George Thorogood had built up a reputation as a touring machine, a, 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 a classic blues man. He'd done some dates with the Stones and did a bunch of regional touring. And then um, he, he, he made some headlines by doing the 50-50 tour. He, George Thorogood and his band, The Destroyers, played all 50 U.S. states in 50 days, which maybe doesn't sound all that amazing until you consider that getting around wasn't quite so easy in 19, I guess this is probably the late 70s, very early 80s. Also, that had to include Alaska and Hawaii. But they did it, and he was rewarded with a spot on Saturday Night Live. And just as the national spotlight was coming on George Thorogood, he delivered what was to be the iconic signature song of his career and this is what i mentioned at the top of the show did you know this song never cracked the billboard top 40 charts i want to be yours pretty baby yours and yours alone i'm here to tell you honey that i'm bad to the bone bad to the bone there are only so many musical phrases that just convey something more effectively than words. And to this day, I mean, here we are all these, it's 41 years later. I do it, my wife does it, my 11-year-old son does it, and now my 4-year-old daughter is has been known to just put on a pair of sunglasses in the backseat of our car and go, and all that means is I'm about to be a cheesy 1980s badass right now. And uh, I, I think she's even taken a crack at bad. And if you think her dad is bad at that, you should hear her try it. That song ne was never a hit. And as you, you might have guessed, well, how do we all know it? It's because of MTV. George Thorogood was not a, a terrific looking man, wasn't a tailor made MTV celebrity, but he had an angle. He had a shtick. Was there, what was in that? Was he, was he playing cards with a cigar hanging out of his mouth? It was a simpler time. That was a massive MTV hit and it just hung around in the culture. And I, I wonder if it's uh, an exaggeration to say that that song has been licensed a thousand times. That's probably that might even be on the low side. Um, how I mean, that was our joke for the longest time on the Jason Ellis show. You know, making up fake movie trailers and just at any point you could either go, but on October twenty sixth. Wow, I feel good. Like it was those two things. That was half the trailers that happened for like a twenty year period of time and it all started right here 
in August of 1982, the exact same month that Michael McDonald was one of two artists who had been associated with an incredibly successful 70s act that that parted ways, um, after which he went his own way and found pretty great success. The second of which is Don Henley, and oh my God, can I not wait to talk to you about Don Henley. But wait, I must. So Michael McDonald was in the Doobie Brothers, and by his own description, I read a great interview with him one time where he said, you know, we were really hot in the 70s, and then all of a sudden everything changed, and we were old and creepy, and then we had to wait, you know, keep our heads down and be a punchline for 10 years or so, and then the renaissance could begin. And uh, he's had an amazing late career run. He started covering, like, Motown songs, and I think he did, like, three of those albums and three live concert videos around him, too, and they were really, really successful for him. And I get it. Michael McDonald was one of my least favorite pop artist as a child. I liked 90% of the stuff that I heard on the radio. I just could not get on board with the Wookiee voice. But Michael McDonald is one of those things like like coffee and a well-timed nap that you just can't really appreciate until you're uh, a tax-paying grown-up. And I get it now. He really is great. I recently added this song to my Spotify collection. You'll all know it. Without this song, we might have never heard of Warren G and Nate Dogg. After a couple of mainstream old white guys moving on to what the kids were listening to in August of 1982, English pop band Dexies, Midnight Runners, a band name inspired, I forget the actual story, it's Speed. Basically, Dexie is Dexedrin, and I can't say that I've dabbled, at least as far as I can remember, but I'm led to believe uh, uh, Dexedrin is Speed. So some guys who uh, probably like Speed <laughs> recorded a song on their second solo album that became uh, it was a top fifteen hit and became a staple of bars. There's probably a bar somewhere right now still playing this song to the delight of drunken punters sometime after midnight. Don't ask me how I know this, but 
the lead guy from Dexy's Midnight Runners released. I don't think a re-recorded, but just a remixed version of the the album. That song, Come and Eileen, came from uh, like in the last year or two. I guess he'd always been unhappy with the mix. So if you've ever listened to Come on Eileen and thought, this is a great song, but I could use a little less reverb on the snare, go ahead and check that out. Elsewhere, in August of 1982... Vince Clark was in the process of transitioning from his early success as a founding member of Depeche Mode to Erasure, where he would find his most lasting success. He's still with Erasure, making records to this day. In the middle, he had two pit stops. There was a mostly forgotten record with a bunch of different singers called The Assembly. And then there was a beloved act that only recorded one album known in the UK as Yazoo. I guess there was already a Yazoo in America. Do you know, Ben? You, you cannot, like, you, you can have a movie that has the same title as five other movies, but you can't have the same name as another band because the idea is you might confuse people in the marketplace they might think they're showing up to see the other band even if they've never even if no one's ever heard of that other band or they cease to exist like 40 years ago that's just those are the rules and i guess it's not surprising that maybe at some point in the wacky psychedelic 60s somebody had already called themselves yazoo so they were yazoo in the uk and they were yaz here in america and they quickly churned out like a low budget album that placed them at the very center of a certain kind of like alternative 80s synth pop that I tend to think of as like John Hughes movie soundtrack music. And Yaz had a couple of really memorable, fairly successful songs off of their one and only album. But this one has always been my personal favorite. Sometimes when I think of her name, when it's only a game. It was just a different time if oh god i love vince clark so much if vince clark had chosen to play guitar instead of keyboards his name probably would have been more of a household name i'm sure it is in in the uk but here in the states and and in canada there was just such a bias against electronic instruments back then but the guy's a wizard and he demonstrated it over a series of uh, of successful acts there in the 80s August of 82 also saw the first, well, how, how do you put this? REM had formed not too long before this in Athens, Georgia. And I never knew, you know, the song Radio Free Europe. It's like one of the bigger early hits of REM. That was literally the first song they ever recorded. They released it as a single and it uh, made a little noise in college rock and so they went back into the studio, and their manager didn't think they were ready for a full-length album. So they followed up their first single with an EP, a five-song EP. And I'm not personally familiar with any of the songs from it, but here is one of them.
definitely sounds like REM, right? Sounds like pretty good REM to me, to each their own. For me, um, uh, Michael Stipe is sometimes a little much for me. So a little Stipe goes a long way for me. And I think that was that was the, the proper amount of Stipe that I want in an REM song. I enjoyed that. Carnival of Sorts, parentheses, boxcars off of the debut EP from REM came out in August of 1982. Of course, very few people outside of really hardcore college radio listeners would have even been aware of that happening, that record coming out. Meanwhile, after the high-profile split, the acrimonious split of the Eagles, yep, we're finally going to talk about Don Henley. Everybody went their separate ways, and Glenn Fry went all 80s and had hits. The heat is on. And Don Henley went all 80s, and he had hits. And if you'd asked me, if you'd said, what is Don Henley's biggest hit song as a solo artist? I just, I think it goes without saying it's Boys of Summer. And if it wasn't that, I, my next guess would have been The End of the Innocence, but it was neither of those. It was a song that I, I, I vaguely recall, perhaps you will remember Dirty Laundry. Let me tell you the backstory of Dirty Laundry. So it's the birth of, of Dad Rock, because you have all these artists who were these idealistic kids in the the 60s and 70s and they're writing about changing the world and then all of a sudden they find they're huge stars and they find massive success and now all of a sudden they're writing songs about you know complaining about how high their taxes are or how hard their divorce was the concerns of middle-aged men and in the case of this song and don henley complaining about what they see on the evening news every night. The song is written from the perspective of a TV broadcaster. There's a a lyric in there somewhere about how I I was trying to be an actor, but somehow I lost my way. Basically saying, the pretty face with the haircut, with the suit that stands there reading headlines on, or sits there reading headlines on the evening news every night, and how disposable and dangerous it all is in the eyes of Don Henley. And he's got some valid points to make. You know, he's about how the news is often misleading or sensational or how they focus on more lurid tabloid style style stories at the expense of things of more substance and meaning to the larger world. Don Henley was outraged when John Belushi died the way that it was covered, the tabloid sensational style in which his death was covered, and ditto Natalie Woods. And that's all well and good, but it says here one of the strongest inspirations for the song Dirty Laundry was uh, Don's reaction to the way media covered his arrest in November of 1980. I don't know how familiar you you are with Don Henley, how deep you go on Eagles lore. Did you know that in November of 1980, Don Henley was arrested on charges of giving cocaine to a minor? The 33-year-old singer was arrested at his home in L.A. uh, and charged by the Department of Sexually Exploited Children. He was booked on suspicion of furnishing cocaine to a minor, subsequently released on $5,000 bail. He was arrested when paramedics had to come to his home to help resuscitate the 16-year-old that he had, he was convicted of, furnishing uh, cocaine, marijuana, well, I don't know. At his house, they found 22 grams of coke, five ounces of weed, a quantity of quaaludes, other drugs, and two 16-year-olds, and a 15-year-old. He was 
arrested for furnishing drugs to the 16-year-old. Meanwhile, the 15-year-old was booked for being under the influence of drugs, and the other 16-year-old was booked for charges of prostitution. So basically, if I'm understanding this correctly, I'm reading this from a United Press International story, but as always, I'm an idiot. I might not know what I'm talking about, but I think it's fairly straightforward here. Don Henley was on the hook for the girl he gave he gave so many drugs to that she was unconscious and needed medical assistance with, but the wasted 15-year-old and the 16-year-old prostitute, that was their fault. Don Henley took a hard look at that situation and decided the problem was the way the media talked about it. Don Henley, who in my experience, like by the time I was current on Dan Don Henley, when I was tuned into the culture and not hearing things that had happened in the past from other people, but observing them with my own eyes, this would have been the late 80s when he was always in black and white PSAs on MTV talking about saving the Walden Woods. He struck me as like one of the conscience of rock and roll guys, like an elder statesman. I had no idea. What, what this monster had done. Don Henley, wherever you are, get off your high horse. Meanwhile, I don't know really anything about Steve Winwood, but I think he's less gross than Don Henley. He put out, I think he, so Winwood's an interesting guy because I didn't, I knew him as the, the 80s dude back in the high life again, right? that most of us grew up on. He'd been this musical prodigy, was in a couple of bands starting from when he was a teenager, which is this really gifted keyboard singer guy, but like uh, one of the stalwarts of classic rock and just managed to really smoothly transition into the 80s, making stuff that was, I feel like, kind of true to himself, had some musical integrity, but slotted very comfortably onto a top 40 radio playlist. Now she can't be that one With the wind in her arms Follow me, call on me, call on me Follow me, come and see That song is, a, in some ways, a, a dry run for like all of Steve Winwood's 80s hits, but that's also a dry run for a later re-recording of that song that would be uh, a really big hit. I dig it. Goes down easy. Cool. Smooth. Doesn't have anything to do with 16-year-old prostitutes and the cocaine I gave them. Uh, I'm not a big Santana guy. I don't know where you stand on Santana. At this point, I'm not even entirely sure what 
Carlos Santana does in Santana. I think people just assume maybe that he sings in Santana. He's not the singer. He's gone through a bunch of singers. I think people definitely assume that he writes the songs. I th When you think, oh, it, uh, Black Magic Woman is a Fleetwood Mac song. I think Oye Como Va was just like a song that was just out there in the ether, like a, a standard kind of song. I, I don't know what he writes. I know he doesn't sing. And although he had a pretty big hit, uh, respectable hit with the following song, in 1982 it doesn't even have any lead guitar on it so i have no way of proving that carlos santana was actually even in the room or in the state for this next as i say modestly successful song that kind of bridged the gap from 70s into 80s it's got a little yacht rock it's got well check it out here's uh, santana and hold on Yacht Rock, it's got disco, it's got Santana bongos, it's got a little bit of like a Survivor, Eye of the Tiger thing in there. That was 1982, it was a certain kind of uh, Papston Chablis drinking brand of 1982, and that was like at least a, a top 20 hit for Santana, and I think things really went into the tank for an extended period of time before his Rob Thomas enabled, enabled renaissance some uh, 15 years or so later. As I mentioned at the top of the show, two of the biggest like arena stadium rock acts of the 70s were notorious for their uh, their drug and alcohol consumption and August of 1982 was more or less the time to pay the piper for both. Aerosmith had parted ways with, well, first Joe Perry left and started the Joe Perry Project. And then at some point after that, rhythm guitar player Brad Whitford also took off undaunted. Just, I'll show them. I never needed those guys anyway. Steven Tyler soldiered on with Tom Hamilton, Joey Kramer, and a couple of other dudes and cranked out what many people regarded at the time as the the nadir the low point of Aerosmith uh I think to my ears this just sounds like the the Aerosmith formula was so durable that even at their worst they were still not too too bad Take it from me, a guy who listens to obscure metal releases from the early 80s, kind of for a living, there were a hundred ba metal bands 
that were signed to a label in 1982 who would have sold their souls to have um, a song as bad as Lightning Strikes by the Joe Perry and Brad Whitford Les Aerosmith. And, uh, you know, you know the story after this, everybody goes to rehab, everybody hugs and makes up, and then they, uh, become one of the preeminent hair metal bands really reinventing themselves and, uh, imitating their imitators with ballads like Angel and Love in an Elevator. And I don't need to tell you folks about Aerosmith. The other big seventies rock act who was mired in a drug hell in August of 1982, yet still releasing a new album, was Alice Cooper. I think Alice Cooper has famously said that there was a three-album run in the early 80s that he has zero recollection of participating in. He doesn't remember writing the songs, recording the songs, touring the songs, um, and he would later get sober as well. I think he's been legitimately not kind of, not like Cali sober. I think Alice Cooper has been sober now for far longer than he was ever wasted. But we find him in, uh, in, uh, in August of 1982, just releasing the second of the three albums he does not recall making. And it is said that while he was recording this, he had a crack pipe at the ready. I thought crack wasn't invented until later. Maybe Alice Cooper had run out of songwriting steam, but managed to, uh, to invent crack along the way to making the album Zipper Catches Skin, which is not... It's funny, Alice Cooper has gone back and listened to these records, and he's able to be fairly objective about them. And he says, oh, he said, I was... This this stuff was completely just bubbling up from my subconscious. There was no one driving the car. But he said, honestly, in my opinion, my subconscious came up with some half-decent stuff. Make what you will about the only single off of Zipper Catches skin entitled I Am the Future. Alice Cooper going, okay, everybody's doing synths now. I, I don't think he was ever so much of a rock purist as he was, you know, more of a theatrical showman. It just doesn't seem like as much of a sellout move for him to bring in keys and stuff when he was always doing, you know, more of a a stage show than just making straightforward rock records and then getting out and jamming them out on, on stage. Yeah, I've heard worse, but it's a shame nowadays we all have a high def video camera with like limitless recording space in our pockets it's a shame that those did not exist in the early 80s because i'll listen to alice cooper's zipper catches skin or aerosmith rock in a hard place but i i would much much rather watch a documentary about the making of those albums sadly those documentaries do not exist we got three more artists to talk about in August of 82, KC, formerly of KC and the Sunshine Band fame, was recovering from a very, very serious car accident. Like, the guy had been 
as big as it gets, shake, 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 shake your booty, get down tonight. Just the most mindless of disco is known for being a, a fairly mindless musical movement. And he may have been among the most mindless of the prominent disco artists. And then there was always the icky optics of the white dude in front of a gigantic band of, of black dudes and, you know, the sunshine band disco had died. And with it, his, his, there was his rapid ascent to superstardom. The, the, the descent was just as rapid and literally adding, I guess, injury to insult he had this car accident very early in 1982. Another car hit his car head on. He was partially paralyzed for six months. He had to relearn how to walk, uh, which is, you know, a useful skill to have. He had to relearn how to play the piano, which is a useful skill if you're Casey of Casey and the Sunshine Band fame. And he had to relearn how to dance. But he did dance again, and he got back in the studio, and he made another album. And although KC is largely remembered as a disco casualty, not only was the song, the, the single from the album that he put out in 1982, All in a Night's Work, um, fairly successful, I think this was at least a top 20 hit, I think it's pretty good. It's just, it's so eternally funny to me how I, I grew up as a kid in the 80s where disco was this this punchline, that disco was this embarrassing thing that we all should pretend never happened and anybody who is into that um, should be should burn all the photos <laughs> to prove it. And yet a guy like Casey could reinvent himself like a year after disco died and make a song that, I mean, the beat's a little different, but it's got the spirit of disco and essentially has the exact same sound. And that was fine. Now Casey had gone 80s. And finally, two more closely related acts. Vanity was one of uh, Prince's protégés. And, you know, along with like Sheila E, Sheena Easton. And in 1982, Prince cast Vanity along with two other ladies in a girl group called Vanity Six. And uh, Prince played all the instruments on their album, wrote all the songs. And I think, although it's kind of forgotten, this single kind of rings a bell for me. I'm looking for a man to love me like I've never been loved before. I'm looking for a man. Yeah, do you remember that? That's like I don't think I've heard that since it was new in '83, but that's it, it, in my musical memory somewhere. Prince is funny because to place him alongside the other, you know, geniuses of 
pop rock is to put him alongside, you know, Pink Floyd and John Lennon and and Paul McCartney. And fundamentally, the dude wrote like synth funk pop songs that were typically about dancing sex or some combination thereof. At the end of the day, it is just synth pop. I'm not going to try to say that that's a genius work of art, but I did feel like Prince and the entire, the extended Prince family of uh, Vanity and Sheena Easton and all that, they always just seemed like at least they were the cool kids of the synth pop set, but I'm not here to try to convince you that that's the greatest song of all time. I like it. I don't love it, but here is the point that I want to make about Prince. I said at the very top of the show that um, one of the most celebrated creative forces in pop music may have been way more amazing than most of us even realize. I was speaking of Prince. So let me lay this out for you. In 1981, Prince released, I think it was his third or fourth album, Controversy, and that had the title track and it had the immortal Do Me Baby on it. A year later, he would release, later in the year we're talking about, 1982, I think in the fall, he released the album 1999, which has the title track, has Little Red Corvette, has a bunch of songs you remember. That's a lot. That's a lot to hang your hat on legacy-wise. But in the meantime, Prince was at that point so incredibly prolific that he had a deal with his label Warner Brothers that he could just sign other acts and release records by them under the Warner umbrella. But he didn't really sign other acts so much as he made other acts as an outlet for all of the stuff that he was writing. And it's cool. He thought it was less fun if all this stuff had his name on it. So he would make up pseudonyms for who wrote the songs. He would make up fake people. He would say that the artists on the records had written the songs when in reality he had written them played them and then put down a guide vocal and made the singer get in and and sing the song exactly the way that he had put it down the great songs of you know for prince of this era speak for themselves but the sheer output is so incredibly staggering he made the controversy album he made the 1999 album this is like all in the space of 12 months he made the album for vanity six right there and he wrote single-handedly recorded and put down guide vocals for another album. And this is what I will leave you with. If you remember Morris Day and The Time at All, you probably know their song Jungle Love. I think that was the next album. But this was yet another outlet for the fire hose of Prince's uh, musical creative outlet, outlet at this point in 1982, the same month that he, under like a pseudonym, put out the Vanity Six album Prince, also released this album from the time. Is it my favorite thing of all time? Not really. But considering it might be Prince's fourth best album that he put out that year, I think it's pretty darn good. Folks, thank you as always for spending some time with me. I will remind you, what else happened in August of 1982? What was Kenny G up to? What was Peter Frampton up to? What were Bad Company doing? If you have a burning desire to know the answers to those questions. As much as I do, come see me for a pod that's up there for free, open for everyone to listen to at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Hope to see you there. If not, I will see you here sometime soon.
person.